Well, we started a good while back. This is lesson 32. We're teaching through the book of Revelation, verse by verse. First time I've ever done that, really. And honestly, tonight I told somebody it's the first time I've actually spoke on the, on the chapter Revelation 19. I've, parts of it I have, but the whole thing, just for that first time I've done that in my ministry. So anyway, I'm excited about it. I'm thinking about putting this together in a book, so... Uh, Anyway, I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, the fun times are coming, chapters 20, 21, 22. It's really exciting. The things that God has prepared for us are awesome. How many hear me? You know, saints of yesteryear, now I feel like, see, now I feel the presence. Here he is. So saints of yesteryear, and I get off when it happens. The saints of yesteryear, life was so tough. How would you like to get up in the morning? It's cold, and you've got to go gather wood, and then you've got to go to a well or a river and get you some water. And then you've got to boil your water and then, so you can have a little bit of coffee if you want to drink. How I many know life is easy now? But when life was tough and it took a lot to live, people would think about the grandeur of heaven and what is to come. And now we're so engaged with our creature's comforts, we rarely think about what heaven is going to be like. I think I'm going to do a series one day on heaven. You don't realize you're not going to be sitting, you know, just sitting back on a chair uh, drinking sweet tea and just enjoying the wind blowing. In heaven, you're going to be busy. You're going to be doing things. A lot of people don't want to go to heaven because they think they'll be unbusy. No, you'll have a lot going on. God might send you to another part of the universe to help him with a project he's working on. Who knows? I mean, you've got eternity to live. You think you're going to be doing nothing? Think again. God made, you to, God made you to thrive. God made you to grow. God made you to develop. Eyes not seen, ears not heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man. The things God's prepared for him. And it's crazy that people don't want to go to heaven. I'm excited about going. I'm just not ready to go yet. Right? I got things to do here. So anyway, uh, the rest of the book really talks about where we're going. It's going to be really, really exciting. We'll get into some of those things as we get to it. Revelation 19, uh, really there's not new information in Revelation 19. It's really the grand finale of God cleansing the earth. So let's just jump right in here. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Now, let me say, if you'll go to Victory Church Raleigh, and I really want to, can I read? I don't normally do this, but I sum, summarize to save time a lot of things here at the beginning of the notes. So go to victorychurchraleigh.com. My notes are there. You can follow me because I'd like to read a few of these paragraphs because uh, just a really simple say, a way to say what's going on here. And again, it's a summarization of of where we've been, and, uh, and, and then Revelation 19 is really the culmination of God cleansing the earth. So Revelation 19, 1 and 2, New King James, after these things, I heard a loud voice of, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth and that great harlot, of course, is the false religious system that started uh, at the Tower of Babel and has been corrupting the nations of the earth ever since Jesus puts his thumb on it and knocks it out of the way. He's, and it's called the great harlot here who's corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged uh, on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So here we are. Here's some summarization of where we've been. Here we are at God's end game, I said here in the notes, of dealing with the effects of Adam's sin. Sin has corrupted man, corrupted the earth with a curse, brought sin, death, disease, darkness to a once pristine environment, teeming with spiritual and natural life. The scroll in God's right hand has been unrolled by Jesus. We, talk, we looked at that, Revelation 4. God is the all author, overarching all authority over the universe. And then uh, he's the overarching authority over, over the earth. Revelation 5, God seated on a throne with a rainbow of colors around him with uh, angels crying, holy, holy. And he's got a scroll in his right hand. And, uh, and, and I said here, the scroll in God's right hand as, has been unrolled by Jesus, the Lamb of God. And as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus has broken the seals on the scroll and has carried out the events that will enable God to judge every enemy, bring justice to those harmed by Satan and his allies, and bring the earth back to the glory it enjoyed before sin ever manifested. So again, let me just stop right here and say, to understand the book of Revelation, it's sequential. You just get the ideas talking to the church church 
Uh, the church is in modern-day Turkey in Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3. Uh, he's introducing Jesus. Is inter- uh, John is introducing Jesus coming to visit him on the Isle of Patmos in chapter 1. And then chapters 2 and 3, seven churches, which really are analogous of what we go through as, as churches today. And in a lot of ways, the challenges that Jesus spoke to those churches about are challenges we have today. So it would behoove us to go back and read Revelation 2 and 3 and read it slowly. Uh, see, it affects local churches, but it affects individual lives too. We, ha- we need to be wholly consecrated to God. How many hear me? And as listen, where we're going now in the world, if you think, you think hell broke loose yet, you've just seen nothing yet. So, so I, think, I think Jesus addressed the churches uh, before he got into what's going to be happening with John there just to let us know, get your ducks in a row, get right with God, uh, have, have a fervor and passion for spiritual things. Don't lolly around in the flesh and get waylaid by the devil and not be ready when Jesus comes back because hell's coming, it's going to land on this planet. And I don't know about you, Jesus whipped, <laughs> he, he whipped the devil for us. He's a defeated foe. But we've got to walk with God. So Jesus was really encouraging the church to do so in Revelations 2 and 3. In Revelation 4 and 5, again, it just shows God as the, as the center of all things, as the one that is worshipped in all of his grandeur in heaven. And then Revelation 5, again, there's a scroll in God's right hand. I'm going to read it in a minute. But that scroll is God's title deed to this planet. He's coming back for this planet. A usurper, a, a, a fraud, took this planet away from God. Uh, thought he did, took the authority, a little bit of authority that God gave Adam and Eve was, was uh, taken by God's arch enemy Satan when they obeyed him and corruption, stealing, killing, destroying, uh, a defamation of God's character, pulling men's hearts away from God and causing corruption to rule the day has been going on on this planet ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And the whole book of Revelation is all about God whisking this planet back from Satan's rule and then judging all of the wrong things throughout the centuries of time and bringing this planet back to where it was before Adam and Eve ever sinned. And uh, you may not realize it in your glorified body. You're not just going to be, again, swinging on a hammock in heaven drinking some, you know, sweet tea. No, you're going to be transversing uh, between heaven and earth, and who knows what else you're going to be doing. You won't just be in heaven. God may say today, I want you to go to earth and do X, Y, Z. Or maybe I want you to oversee this continent or this city or this thing I'm doing over there because they're gonna, this, this earth is going to endure through eternity. How many hear me? We, we, we think about peace-size when it comes to what God's going to be doing in our future. you just got to understand God's got a grand scheme. And for that grand scheme to be fulfilled, this earth has to be cleansed. So revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis, unveiling. He's unveiling what the future is going to look like. So again, here are the notes. We've looked at what happened at the seals on the scroll when they're broken. The scroll in God's right hand is this title deed to the planet earth. The Antichrist rose to power and began his rule as the seals were broken. Revelation chapter 6, war, famine, death, disease, martyrdom came to the earth as the Antichrist began to establish his rule. And all that happened as the seals on the outside of that scroll in God's hands were broken open. And then the church was removed from the earth just before the last seal was broken on the scroll in God's right hand, Revelation chapter 6, 12 through 18, uh, and before the judgment of God against his enemies began. Then the seven trumpet judgments. So you got seals, trumpets, and bowls. All of them are judgments. They're sequential. We've talked about all this in great detail. Just trying to summarize. You know, if you keep that, in, if you keep that, that, um, that view in mind, um, uh, when you read this book, it just makes a lot more sense that he's trying to give you an overall picture of what's going on and that it is sequential. So in Revelation chapter 8, the first, of, of, uh, uh, first trumpet uh, is blown. There's seven trumpets that blow. When the trumpets blow, judgment fall. This is the day of the Lord beginning in Revelation 8, 1. And that's when the judgment of God begins on planet Earth. We won't be here during that time, but as the, uh, as the paragraph says here, that I uh, wrote. So the seven trumpet judgments begin the awful day of the Lord judgments in Revelations 8 and 9. Meteorites was what it looks like. Begin their destruction of earth's environment as the green vegetation wilted, the fresh salt, uh, fresh and salt waters are polluted, and demonic spirits from deep within the earth begin to attack those who are allied with the Antichrist. Satan rose up from those 
uh, through the beast who is the Antichrist and the false prophet who encouraged the earth's population to worship the Antichrist, yield to his reign. Jews and Christians were severely persecuted, killed, and they refused the mark of allegiance that would allow them to function financially on the earth. Many died. And again, uh, this is during that awful time. Uh, We will be here for part of that time. We will endure some persecution. Nobody wants to think about, you know, being persecuted uh, because they're a believer. Uh, We live in a land up to this point that we've had great freedoms. Our freedoms are being challenged now in all sorts of ways. But in the future, uh, at least a portion of the earth is going to be terribly challenged by the Antichrist. And some will give their lives. I've been praying since 2015 in my private life and in our public prayer meetings here on Saturdays. And I never prayed this in my life. I've been praying for martyr grace on different groups of people. There are those who will give their lives for Jesus. And you just got to understand it. Like, for instance, uh, 11 of the 12 apostles, they were martyred. Uh, Paul had his head cut off right after he finished writing 2 Timothy uh, to to the the young man of God, Timothy, who was overseeing the uh, church at Ephesus. And he knew what was coming. but But when Paul faced the knife, the grace of God was there. The last breath he breathed, Jesus grabbed him, they chopped his head off. You don't have to be concerned about martyrdom if that's the will of God for you. Because if God wants you to face martyrdom to give him glory, for you to have a wonderful shiny place in heaven, he'll give you grace to go through it. If God wants you to, if you live in a time of persecution, God will give you grace to go through persecution. And the more persecuted you are, the brighter your light will shine. We don't like to talk about any of that in America because we think we ought to, you know, just live on flowery beds of ease and, uh, you know, just eat the finest stuff, eat finest food, eat the finest chocolates and uh, drink the sweetest stuff. But, you know, sometimes persecution comes and we have to be aware of that as believers. The question for me is, am I willing to live in such a way that if people disagree with me, I don't change? Is that good? You don't hear much of this, do you? No, we talk about all the blessing. Well, with the blessing also comes the sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, often the greater the blessing. Then then God's judgments, as I continue to read against sin, begin their final cleansing of the earth with seven bold judgments being unleashed. Uh, The earth's environment turned against humanity one last time as destruction filled the atmosphere of the earth with God's anger against sin and it completely destroys God's enemy. So Revelation 15 and 16, uh, 15 setting it up for and then Revelation 16 talks about the the seven bold judgments. They last less than a month but they cleanse the earth of of all of the defilement of sin and rebellion and then knock the Antichrist off of his feet. He's get, he gets, you'll see what happens to him tonight. And the earth is re- generally and quickly returned back to its, uh, its Edenic glory, its glory that it had when Adam and Eve were in Eden. Isn't that awesome? And so I go on to say here, uh, the last little paragraph I want to read is the false religions called the harlot in Revelation 17. We took two lessons and looked at Revelation 17 that have worked with governments of the earth to lead people away from God. They were destroyed by God's power. So there are a lot of heathen religions today. They've been going on. We looked in detail when we looked at the first part of Revelation 17. Those heathen religions have been here ever since the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was the beginning of heathen religions, and we gave the details of that in a lesson. You can find it online again. The economic system called Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is not just a physical physical city location. Babylon the Great is a term uh, used in the Bible for an economic system that uh, worked with false religions to bind the people of the world uh, to greed and all of the things that go with it. How many know God said, 1 Timothy 6, or the Apostle Paul said, the Holy Spirit inspired him to say, the love of money is what? The what of all evil? It's the root of all evil. It's the foundation of it. So again, the economic system called Babylon the Great in Revelation 18 was destroyed that allowed rebellion against God to reign in the nations of the earth. Now look at Revelation 19 verse 3, and we'll get right to that. And again, they say, and these are the 
folk around God, God's throne there that you see in Revelation 4. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, it says about Babylon the Great. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and, and, and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So here again is a scene in heaven that we saw, first of all, in Revelation chapter 4, uh, uh, the apostle uh, John went up to heaven and he saw the, the uh, throne of God with the angels surrounding it in Revelation 4 and they were worshiping God because he was going to judge all of the corruption of the ages. It was in the future and here it is in Revelation 19. It's already happened and they come again and they're worshiping on the backside of that. It's already done and they're excited about it and they're worshiping it about him about that. And so again, it says, the Lord God, the omnipotent reigns. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the same. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So this is the, these two verses, verse 7 and then verse 9, are the only two verses in the Bible that talk about this marriage feast of the Lamb. What in the world is the marriage feast of the Lamb? Well, I think perhaps um, Song of Solomon personifies God's relationship with his people and how he feels about us more than any book of the Bible. Even though the name God is not mentioned in the Song of Solomon, his love for us, his, de- his endearing care and his thoughts about us are revealed in the Song of Solomon. If you haven't read those verses, those chapters in the Song of Solomon recently, go back because the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's God's relationship with his people and it's and Jesus' relationship with the church here is likened to a marriage relationship. Now, what is a marriage relationship? It's close, it's intimate, and it's celebratory. Or it ought to be, right? The closest person, the closest relationship, human relationship we should have is marriage. Yes or no? I mean, come on, you become one flesh with somebody? You're supposed to be one thought, one everything. Uh, if that person feels something, you feel it. They want something, you want it. They like something, you like it. They don't like it, you don't like it. You're one, right? You know, I've been married this year 42 years, and, you know, when I first got married, it was a change. You know, I I didn't have the privilege of being single very long. I was, you know, uh, 20, almost 21 when I got married, but I noticed a huge change. Before that, it was me and what I want to do, what I want to do with my time, what I want to eat, where I want to go, what I value in life, how I dress, where I live, what kind of car I drive. All of that changed when I married, my, when I married Susan. She's not here tonight. She, I pointed because she's normally there. But all of that changed. Why? Because they became one. And now her concerns became my concerns. And it's no longer I'm just living to please me. No, I'm living to please Jesus first. But I want to do what she likes because we're close. We're intimate. And we celebrate together. See, that's what God has for the church. You ever thought about God saying, hey, hey, what do you like? What you want to do? I love you. You ever thought about that? No, I know we think in terms of we obey him and we love him. We want to do what pleases him. But you got to understand his heart is endeared to us. Is that awesome? And that's what this, you know, it sounds strange. You mean God wants to marry us? No, you got to understand he wants to have that kind of relationship with us eternally. So, so think about God cleansing the earth from all these contaminants and going right just before we go into the 1,000-year reign of Jesus and then into eternity, God says, we're changing something here. It's not going to be a distant relationship. We're going to be tight. We're going to be close. I love you, and I, I've got eternity to show you how much you do. Isn't that awesome? So to start it out, he says, let's celebrate. 
All this mess is gone. All the corruption's gone. The Antichrist is gone. All of the plagues are gone. Everything's going to be brand new. Let's celebrate. We got a lot of living to do. Isn't that awesome? Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Isn't it striking that God would relate, would, would, would show his relationship with us? In view of a marriage relationship, you know, if you're married, you know what that means. And God says, I want to have that kind of close, close relationship with you. Isn't that awesome? It's incredible. Verse verse 29, Ephesians 5, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cemented, glued to his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. That means they act like one. One doesn't do something out of sync with the other one. The husband doesn't spend the money without the wife being aware. The wife doesn't spend the money without the husband being aware. Yes? Huh? They don't make plans of how, what they're going to do with their weekend, how they're going to spend their time, where they're going on vacation, how they're going to live during the week without the other person being involved, right? That's what the one flesh thing is all about. One flesh is all about I'm not living life independently of this other person. We're joined together. This is just like this person is joined in my body, and that's what God's saying about us with this marriage supper of the Lamb. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave. His father and mother be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wow. I know you probably haven't thought about it a lot. Most believers don't, but that marriage supper is a big deal. You're not just going to be eating fried, I probably won't be eating fried chicken and, and you know, ham. And, you know, probably won't eat, eat ham in heaven anyway, right? No meat, nothing dies. He's got something better. If God could create manna, for the dudes in the wilderness, what do you think he's got for us up there? Exodus 16, it says, man did eat angels' food. Well, Psalm's talking about Exodus 16. Man did eat angels' food. God's got some stuff up there that's going to make your, well, if you had hair, it'd curdle. I'm going to have all my hair back in heaven. Isn't it awesome? You ever think about the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you know God's going to send you an invitation? At the rapture of the church, that's your ticket for the marriage feast. Is that good? Oh, my goodness, y'all. It's really exciting. Uh, Some also believe during this marriage feast of the Lamb, uh, that's also a time that God's going to hand out awards. You know, it's kind of an award ceremony. It's a big banquet, lots of luscious food to eat in heaven. You know you're going to be eating food in heaven, right? You're going to be eating food in heaven. You're going to be eating food in heaven. Else, why would you have a, a, a marriage banquet? Did, did Jesus eat food after he rose from the dead? Did he eat fish? Did he break bread with them? Did he eat the bread? So question, will the, will the glorified human body that will exist in eternity be able to eat? Yes. It'll be a flesh and bone body, not flesh and blood. So it'll have a, have a different source of energy and power. But it's really kind of incredible, isn't it? So again, during that time, it'll also be a, a banquet, an awards banquet. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul was given the, uh, gave the illustration, and really it was a revelation from the Lord, that, um, that we're going to receive rewards when we get in, into heaven. 2 Corinthians, and I'll go over this again in Revelation 20, but 2 Corinthians um, 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment or reward seat of Christ, that we may be judged for the things that we do in our bodies post-salvation, after salvation. So, you know, our, our, our salvation is not in view, but the awards that we have and our place setting in eternity is determined by our obedience. Now, most believers today think, I just do what I want to do, live the way I want to live. I got a ticket to heaven. Hey, it's a one-way ticket. I ain't coming back, so it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Obedience matters now. 
People little realize that how we live now, what we value now determines our placing in eternity. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And what he basically said every day we live, we're accruing eternal rewards. Things that are done selfishly for the benefit of me and nobody else. Uh, so that I can glory, things done out of pride, self-centeredness, without the thought of God or others. Well, the Apostle Paul epitomized that with uh, uh, wood, hay, straw. Yeah. But those things that we do without thinking of ourselves, putting Jesus first, putting other people first, obeying God when it's not convenient, gold, silver, precious stones are accruing. Is that good? That's exciting, isn't it? So, you know, I always wonder what's going to be at my feet when the smoke clears. Because Jesus' blazing eyes, once they hit the the wood, hay, and straw, and and believe me, everybody's got some wood, hay, and straw. If you don't think you do, you're just full of pride. (laughs) You got some. Everybody's going to have smoke when Jesus stands before you. I feel like I got to get into it a little bit. This guy years ago, 30-something years ago, actually had a dream and saw, and he wrote a book about it. Uh, saw the judgment seat of Christ and uh, uh, who, who, who started, um, oh, let's see, uh, Salvation Army. Who was that? William Booth actually had a vision and saw exactly the same thing that this pastor saw. He's a guy in California back in the late 80s. He actually saw the reward seat of Christ and here's Jesus in his dream. William Booth saw the same thing. Here's, here believers, they're, they're, they're kind of scattered and they're away from each other, but they're standing. And Jesus is going up to each one of them. He had a torch in his hand. And each one of them, he'll say something to them. And he'll just touch them with the torch. And all the wood, hay, and straw goes. And then, and then two, two sounds are heard. Guttural sobs or ecstatic shouting. Every time he touches somebody. You see smoke and you hear either guttural sobs or ecstatic, exuberant joy, shouting. What would that be all about? I suppose those that decided they wanted less than God's best. They catered to the flesh. They catered to the whim of the moment, the attitude of the culture. Perhaps those are the guttural sobs. Those that loved not their lives to the death, and they endured the beatings, the abuses, all of the hardships, Perhaps the missionary who said, I could have had a plush life in America, but you know I'm living in this bush. I'm living in a thatched roofed hut with a dirt floor like everybody else in this community because I love them. Perhaps that's the one that experiences exuberant shouting. You imagine? It's a lot to think about, isn't it? Anyway, a lot of uh, Bible scholars believe that during this marriage feast, that's one of those things will be presented. Just want to be aware. And I felt like I hang out, hung out there more than I was going to. Just be aware that every day of life is being recorded. Not for salvation purposes, because we're not saved by works, uh, but for reward purposes. And then there are six, there are six crowns, and I won't even get into that tonight. There's a crown of life, crown of righteousness for others. There are six crowns that are available for believers. I'll teach you on that again sometime. uh, That will perhaps be handed out at this marriage feast. Won't that be something? You know, uh, we sing the song, um, Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty. And it's a scene in Revelation 4. And it talks about the, the the, the saints casting their crowns before the glassy sea, which is the is the ground right in front of the throne of God. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because God gave them a reward for a life that honored him and they wanted to give him something back. I have a feeling that when you get to heaven and you see Jesus, you don't want to have your hands empty. What do you think? You know, protocol even on earth, you go to visit a dignitary or even you go to somebody's home, you give them a gift. I've had many people when Susan and I first moved in our home 15 years ago to come and visit our home for the first time. They gave us a little housewarming gift. Don't you want to give him something when you get there? 
We sang a song in the Baptist church, Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Must I go and empty-handed? Must I empty-handed go? I don't know about you, but every day we're accruing wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, jewels, and perhaps eventually some crowns. How many want some? And see, they're not for you. Can you imagine? The person that saved your soul kept you out of hell Gave you eternity in a pristine environment. You look at him the first time. What are you going to say? I plan to fall in a, just a heap. And if he gives me something, I'm going to throw it at his feet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Perhaps it will happen there. Verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him. Can we lift our hands a minute? Hallelujah, Lord, we worship you tonight. Uh, your presence is so amazing, and we are so attached to this life. Bring to pass that every person that listens to this video or audio, or maybe present now, grant us, Lord, a hunger, a hunger for right living and a hunger to be able to throw something at your feet during that grand banquet. My, my, my. Verse 10 says, I fell at his feet to worship him. That is, John was going to worship the angel talking to him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, worldwide, I've traveled to uh, Europe, um, Russia, Siberia, India, Africa, Middle, um, Middle East. I've been to uh, Central America. I haven't been to South America yet. But, uh, you know, I've been to places and I've seen idols. And I have seen saints worshipped. Idols of Mary. No, they don't call them idols. They don't call them that. But they're put on a little mantle. A lot of people, in, perhaps, in fact, uh, first time I went to Siberia, people had icons of the saints, and they would they would put it on the mantle board above their hearth in their living in their living rooms, and they would worship and burn incense before those icons. I found out, and they've been doing that for a long time, for generations, and that's how they worshipped their God. The Orthodox Church allowed that. You know what it also drew? Demon power. Do you hear me? So every time I read this verse, when this angel, I mean, John was so overwhelmed, I don't think he realized what he was doing, fell down. The angel said, don't do it to me. I mean, no, you should never do anything like that. In fact, uh, that's why we don't have any kind of statues. I'd never have a statue of Jesus. I don't even have a picture of Jesus on a wall anywhere. I'm not going to worship that picture. I'm going to worship. I don't think any picture would adequately, adequately portray who he is and what he looks like. In fact, I don't want my mind marred by that. When I see him first time, I want to see him pure, don't you? Verse 11, now I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now again, this white horse, this is Jesus coming back. You know, you see a scene you think it's similar, but it's not in Revelation 6, 1, when Jesus breaks the first seal on the scroll in God's right hand. Uh, here's, here's a guy coming out on a white horse, and uh, he's, he's a blasphemous person, and he's a rude person, he's an arrogant person, and he conquers. He's going out to conquer and to conquer. That is not Jesus Christ. That's the Antichrist, so that's Revelation 6. But this is Jesus himself. And it says he comes out on a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, not arrogant and proud. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And so if he's going to do something, he's going to do it fairly, appropriately, justly, right? So Jesus wars in righteousness, not in the blasphemous way the Antichrist does. So again, this is not that same person. In fact, Revelation 13, 5 and 6, uh, speaking of the Antichrist, it says, 
Uh, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And then he was given authority to continue for three and a half years, 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So he's a blasphemous person. This is not, uh, this Jesus certainly isn't that. No, this is Jesus here. And he's coming back on a white horse. Then it says here, verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Can you imagine him? And his head, on his head were many crowns. How can you picture a person with more than one crown on their head? Hmm. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, that's comparable to Revelation 1, where John originally saw Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus wasn't like anything John saw when he walked in his earth walk three and a half years and he was his disciple. He was in his glory. And it says in Revelation 1.14, his hair was white. Head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Then his voice as the sound of many waters. I mean, you see somebody like that, that's liable to scare the bejeebies out of him, so to speak. Wow. So he says again here, verse 14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. A lot of Bible commentators say, well, those are the, that's the angels of heaven. No, no, that's the saints of God. That's the saints of God coming back with Jesus. That's you and me. What do you think about coming back with Jesus riding a white horse and you're wearing, wearing clothing of white and you're coming back to whip the tar out of the Antichrist? What do you think about that? Could that be true? It's absolutely true. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb, talking about the, the uh, nations that are in league with the Antichrist. Revelation 17, we already talked about it. And the Lamb will overcome them, for he's Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And those who are with him, that is the Lamb, Jesus, when he comes back riding on the white horse, are called chosen and faithful. There's no angel in heaven ever called chosen or faithful, that's reserved for the saints of God. That's how we know these, these are believers that are coming back with Jesus from heaven. So remember, we, uh, uh, if you were here, uh, uh, when we went through Revelation chapter 11 and the uh, seventh trumpet was blown, um, um, the statement in Revelation eleven fifteen is, the kingdoms of this world have now, have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Uh, that is when Jesus comes back. That is the second coming of Christ. And Jesus is here during those bold judgments we read about in Revelation 16. And Jesus has, has been here right here at the battle of Armageddon. Evidently, he goes back to heaven and gets the glorified saints that have been raptured already. And they're, they're in their white robes. He says, mount up. They get on their horse and they come with him. And they come with him back. And that's what he's referring to in verse 14. The armies in heaven, that would include you, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword uh, that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How many know God's wrath is pure? Most people never think of God in terms of having wrath or anger. Wrath is really anger in display. Wrath is, is anger you can see. Wrath is judgment against something a person doesn't like. And so when the Bible talks about the wrath of God here, uh, it's talking about God's righteous anger and perfect judgment against all of the inequities of man, and he comes to make it right. Wow. And it says here, uh, and so again, it says, uh, a sharp sword goes out of his mouth. Now, that's, that's right in line with Scripture, Revelation 14, 16. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Talks about that sword coming out of his mouth. We, we talk about, we, we, we read about Revelation, I mean, Hebrews 4.12, the sword of the Spirit. 
The word, the, the word of God is, is sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing between soul and spirit, etc. right? So there's something about God's word that is sharp and it does stuff. It's coming out of Jesus' mouth here. Second Thessalonians 2.8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when Jesus comes back, uh, he doesn't need a sword to fight. He just opens his mouth and the words of his mouth destroy his enemies. So how can that be? Well, let me ask you a question. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Question, did God create the world with words? Do you think God can create judgment with words? Do you think then that Jesus could defeat his enemies with words? That's obviously what happens when he comes back. That's incredible. You'll be there to see this. Won't that be something? So what's being talked about here in Revelation 19 is what we've heard, that final battle, the battle of Armageddon. That is what this is talking about. Now, this was mentioned in Revelation 16. This is uh, the last of the bold judgments is really the battle of Armageddon. That is, what is the battle of Armageddon? That's when the Antichrist gets a bunch of nations together, probably in the Middle East area, and he comes against Jesus, comes against Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and seeks to absolutely dethrone Jesus and just completely wipe out the kingdom of God. That is the final, last, great battle and uh, it'll be on a plane in a, a, a big section of land uh, that Napoleon says was, was, uh, during his time was the largest battlefield in the world. And uh, Revelation 16 says it this way, verse 12. Everybody okay? Well, almost done. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates in that portion of the world. That's one of the oldest rivers in the world. It was in the Garden of Eden. And its water was dried up so that, so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Verse 13, Revelation 16, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets, demon spirits, for they're spirits of demons, performing signs which uh, go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. What's it say? The kings of the world are deceived by demon spirits saying this is the way to go. You need to listen to this, this guy, this world leader that the Bible calls Antichrist, calls him the beast in Revelation. They say, follow him. He's doing the right thing. We need to whip whatever he says needs to be whipped. Let's go after it. And so it's a deceiving thing that happens there. Then it goes on to say verse 15, Behold, I'm coming as a thief, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. And that's speaking of that plain. So again, that's the, that's the, very, uh, that's the sixth angel pouring out his bowl. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's the battle of Armageddon. It's uh, in Revelation 19, he's just talking about what it looks like. Revelation 19, 17. Here we are, almost done. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, come uh, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Hey, y'all hungry? Come over here. There's a lot to eat. Uh, that you may eat the flesh of kings. I know it's gross, right? Uh, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those, um, those of whom they, uh, who sit on them, the flesh of all the people. Free and slave, both small and great. Now, etched in my head for eternity, I was in lower Ethiopia uh, where we have six churches and we're on, it was a really rustic road, dirt road. We're going and, uh, and we had to uh, traverse several rivers, cross rivers in our SUV. It was kind of strange. And, and anyway, the, 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 it was just nutty. It's crazy. It's just uh, really, really, really a surreal place. And I looked to my left and here was a dead animal just off the road, you know, maybe, maybe 25 feet from me. But y'all, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, at least 40 vultures. I mean, these are the biggest birds. I guess, could, could you call them clarions or something? What a, some, I don't know all the names of them. Somebody can correct all that. Anyway, huge birds. And they were devouring that animal that died. And they weren't nice about it either. They were ripping and they were, they were loud. Their wings were flapping. And, it, and every time I read this, I think about that scene. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen that many uh, uh, 
birds that eat flesh together like that. But that's what it says it will be like here. And this comes actually Ezekiel 39, 38, and 39. That's really talking about the last great battle. Ezekiel 39, 27, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird. That's where he gets this from. Speak to every sort of bird, to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I'm sacrificing for you. A great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel. That you may eat the flesh and drink the blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, bulls, lambs, goats, bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you're full. Drink blood uh, till you're drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I'm sacrificing for you. These shall be filled at my table with horses, riders, mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. That's 2,500, that's, well, actually, that's 700 years before, before John saw that on Patmos. The Holy Spirit showed him that. That means, y'all, that's going to happen. So those, of, those that are fighting God, fighting Jesus, fighting all things right, one day, their day's coming. Verse 19, it says, I saw the beast of the... I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So one last battle, the battle of Armageddon. We're coming from heaven. Jesus is coming from heaven. He's on a white horse. We're in white linen. We're following him. And he starts talking and they start falling. And uh, they think they're going to whip him, but it's not going to work out that way. Then it says that then the beast, that is the uh, Antichrist was captured, and with him the false prophet, that is the religious leader, pointing everybody to him, saying he's the, he's the way to go. He's the thing to do. How many know the people who, uh, how many know the majority are usually not right? You want to think about that today. The majority, if you're doing what everybody else does, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Have you ever thought about that? How many times in the Bible were the majority right? Look what we're doing in America. Now, you figure that out any way you want to. Is it true? Everybody else is saying it. They're saying it on all the news broadcasts. Who cares? The majority are usually not right. Twelve people went out to spy the land of Canaan in Numbers 13. Ten had a... Ten had a bad report. Two had a good report. Ten perished in the wilderness. Only two went into the promised land. Question, what you following? Huh? Something to think about, isn't it? If you just, if you want to be like everybody else, you're probably going to miss it like everybody else. Figure it out. So again, Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. That's interesting, this mark thing, isn't it? Everybody's talking about the mark. Is this stuff that's happening now the mark? I don't know, but it could be a precursor for it. If you, I won't even get into it. You figure it out yourself. I'm just saying it's going to be really easy for people to acquiesce to the Antichrist. Yes or no? Look how easy, easily people changed their lifestyles this last year. Yes or no? Is that true? You just think through on it a little bit. You'll figure it out. These two, that is the Antichrist and the false prophet, the false religious leader, were cast into the lake of, burn, lake of fire burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from his mouth from the mouth of him who sat on the throne and all the birds were filled with their flesh. God's got this whole thing taken care of. In my notes, I'm not going to read it. I've got uh, the first nine verses of Zechariah 14. It's really interesting because it's talking about this last battle and it's really quite insightful. You remember in Mark chapter 11 where uh, Jesus said, whoever says to this pointed to a mountain, whoever says to this mountain be removed, be cast into the sea and dutton down in his heart, but believes that what he says will be done, he'll have what he says. You know what mountain Jesus was pointing to? It was the Mount of Olives. You know what's going to happen to the Mount of Olives when Jesus comes back? It's going to split and flatten out into a plain. So everything Jesus says always comes to pass, y'all. You go home and read Zechariah 14, first nine verses. It's what we just read. In fact, you want me to end reading it? 
Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I, am, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That's that last battle, Armageddon. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24. Um, half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth. That's what we just read about in Revelation 19, Jesus riding on the white horse. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faced Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in Mark eleven twenty three. Isn't that cool? Uh, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. That's what we just read about in Revelation 19. It shall come to pass in that, that day there will be no light. The lights will dim, diminish. It shall be one day which is known unto the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day shall the, uh, that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Right there, that's the very end of Revelation 19, Revelation 20. I mean, it talks about the millennial reign of Christ. This is the very end of all of the judgments necessary to cleanse the earth. This is the beginning of a grand time with God and his people. It starts with that marriage feast. So are you ready for that marriage feast? Question that I have for myself, what am I taking to it? When, when I stand before Jesus, if that is the time, that we stand before the reward seat of Christ. Do you have something to give him? That's the question I have. Do you have something? Do I have something? Am I going to go there with my hands full of things, rewards for accomplishments out of obedience to God? I don't know about you, but I want to go with something in my hand, don't you?